welcome to Cinema Around the Corner. I am Ben Wager with my co-host, Don Gibson. Hey there. And I'm very excited because today we're starting a new theme of our podcast. Uh, as you know, we were going through, for quite a while, we were going through the uh, Best Picture nominees that did not win uh, year by year. And we, we got into the, to the mid to late 80s. Uh, but now we're moving into this new theme. And this new theme is we're looking at plays that were adapted uh, into films and we're picking two from each decade, starting with the 1950s. And so today is our first episode of this series. So uh, we're going to open up by Don introducing his selection and we'll have a little discussion about it. You're on, Don. Great. Well, yeah, so this was, uh, we, we talked about, you know, where to take this, uh, you know, podcast. And I think this is a very, this is a Ben's thought. And I think it's a very interesting idea because obviously plays and films, you know, there's so many similarities about, you know, how we watch them. And there's obviously they connect really well. And I think we'll also get a pretty good idea. Like the, the two selections we have, there's many aspects about them that look like they're plays on film. And I think as the, you know, the idea developed, um, I think people started to realize that you could do, it doesn't necessarily look like a plan of film, even though sometimes you can really tell, but these almost feel, they almost feel like that, that we're simply watching a play, but not totally, but it's sort of like staged and where they're facing us and things like that. Anyway, so it's, it's an interesting thing to talk about. I'm sure those themes will come up. When we came up with this, I, I originally wanted to do uh, 12 Angry Men, a uh, film with uh, many actors in it, including uh, Henry Ford. Not Henry Ford. No, the other Ford. Henry Ford's the guy that made the cars. No, it is. Oh, Henry Fonda. That's what I'm... <laughs> okay. Henry Ford and Henry Fonda. There you I think go. you're mixing up the director with the actor. That's what I'm doing. Exactly. Thank you. And so, but then, and I love that. It's, I recommend 12 Angry Men very highly, but it's not based on a play. It's based on a teleplay, I found out. So it was originally written for TV and then they adapted it as a film. So then I'm like, okay, I can't, we can't start up this uh, podcast and already being making compromises. Like, sadly, that's a beautiful film. There's so many great things to say about it. The film I chose is uh, called Mr. Roberts. And as Ben noted, the director of this film is uh, John Ford. And John Ford is, you know, one of the towering greats of American cinema. He made about 20 years early, earlier than that, Stagecoach, which is an incredible Western. He made How Green Was My Valley, which is one of the most beautiful films ever seen. He did The Searchers, My Darling Clementine, Young Mr. Lincoln, Grapes of Wrath. And those last three, he also did with um, the star of this film, uh, which is Henry Fonda. And coincidentally, he was also in, as I mentioned, 12 Angry Men. So this is based on a play called Mr. Roberts. And interestingly enough, Henry Fonda was the star on Broadway for, I think it went, it said like he did like 1,200 performances, but I think it went for like six and a half years or something. So, and very popular. And so it's, this is a very specific time. This, uh, this film and play represent a very specific time for the United States in that it's post-World War II and then how people are processing. So it's not a war film. It's, well, it is, a, the war's still going on. We see no action. And it's about a, a, a ship that's sort of in the backwaters um, of the war. They're not doing anything. They have a really, uh, you know, dictator type uh, captain that uh, he just is, 
you know, he's a total jerk and he's always telling the crew to clean the boat and morale's really down. And then the character that uh, Henry Fonda plays is Mr. Roberts and he just wants to transfer off the boat. He wants to go see action. He's really patriotic. He wants to be involved in the war. And there's this interesting feeling of there's lots of people in this boat are like complaining but they don't really want to be transferred off the boat because transfer off the boat means you're going to go see action and obviously war, it's dangerous. So, so they're kind of, it's this interesting moment of people thinking, you know, the war is winding down. I don't want to get killed now. And, but it's about doing the right thing. And this character, Mr. Roberts is definitely someone that does the right thing. And so in the story, uh, he's always fighting for the right thing. And then it, he finally, the captain won't give him, uh, give the crew leave. Um, and they've been stuck on the boat for a very long period of time. And so then he finally makes a deal with the captain. You can have leave, um, and, but you'll promise never to ask me for, to transfer ever again. And so it's interesting, all these compromises and decisions. And it's, I think it would, would have been just a great play to see. Um, it's quite wooden on film now, and it doesn't hold up very well. As I was saying, this, this film, there's long scenes that go for, you know, five or six minutes of, you know, Henry Fonda and the cast is, you know, we have John Ford uh, acting and then you have these scenes with these, you know, giants of, of cinema. So the, 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 the angry um, uh, captain is played by J James Cagney and obviously he's quite a lot older now. And then William Powell, who was, a, this is his last film. He was, he was a giant of, of the 30s, so he did all these screwball comedies like My Man Godfrey. He was like, you know, the big star of, of the 30s. And so he was in it. And then we also had uh, Jack Lemmon, who wasn't known at the time, but this was, he was actually nominated and won Best Supporting Actor for the film. So the acting, I, I don't think you could say the, I think the acting's pretty good, but as I said, it's kind of, staged and wooden the dialogue is pretty forced and the scenes tend to really drag out and as i said it looks like you're sort of watching a scene on a set and then we cut to another set and even though they did shoot they shot a lot on location they shot in, on location in hawaii and they did some uh shooting in on the in the uh studio lot as well uh, you know uh, interesting thing about the film was uh john ford this is later in his career and he was a very cantankerous, very difficult man. And um, he was, he could be really hard on people, but he drank like uh, a crazy guy. And he had a major, uh, no one really knows exactly, but they said, I think it said it was appendicitis or some sort of- um, Gallbladder. Gallbladder, thank you, it was a gallbladder. But lots of people think it, it was actually, he just drank too much and he needed to dry out. Anyway, we don't know, another director came in and he, he just said, I'll shoot this, all this exactly the way uh, Ford would have wanted it. But so the last third, the last part of the filming that was shot on set in LA, none of it was shot by Ford. The first two thirds were, but you know, he had uh, major confrontations uh, with uh, people in the production. Uh, a very interesting, you know, issue. So this was an incredibly popular play. It was a no brainer to bring it to uh, Hollywood. But with the casting of it, Henry Ford was, is old for this role. Actually, everybody's too old for the role. And, you know, James Cagney at this time must have been in, in his late 60s, early 70s. And there's no way a captain of the boat is going to be that old. But everybody's old. William Powell was, was a very old guy, and he's the doctor on the, on the ship. So, and, then, and the interesting thing is Ford actually fought for all of those guys 
because he actually, as I mentioned, he worked at many films with uh, Henry Fonda, and he and and he said, "I'm not," and I asked him to do the film, and he said, "I won't do it without Fonda." And then it turned out he and Fonda had conflicts. There's there's a story of, of a big fight they had in. Forget somebody punched somebody, but it was, it was Ford. A- Ford punched Fonda, cold cocked him in the face at a meeting. Yeah, which is classic Ford. Ford's kind of known for this, but it's interesting because Fonda really had like conflict with him the entire film. And the interesting thing is, you know, Ford is the guy that got him onto the film, and he was accused of or what they what he thought was he basically was was giving all the lines and moving the entire film to Jack Lemmon and this sort of goofy. There's a lot of fall, a lot of sort of Pratt fall things that Jack Lemmon's always sort of like, you know, bumbling and bumbling. And he's this sort of funny guy, gets a lot of laughs. Jack Lemmon, this was his breakthrough performance. After that, he did phenomenally well. This is the film that kind of, I guess you'd say, made him. But uh, other people were complaining. That that was uh, the name of um, of Jack Lemmon's character is Ensign, I forget his Pulver. name. Purvis. Pulver. Purvis. Pulver. Is Pulver? I thought it was Purvis. Pulver. Okay. And so, and so, the, and so, people were complaining, saying, "So this film is not called, you know, Private Pulver. It's actually called Mr. Roberts." And and there were, you know, people, Wanda was complaining, like you you switched the focus of this. And in, in the end, they actually pulled a lot of his stuff out, and they actually returned to what the film is all about. Point is, is this film had problems from the very beginning right through the end. Um, it and people, a lot of people say about it, and at the time. It's such a it's such great potential. There's so many great people involved. It's a great property, and it never really lived up to it. And they said it about now. When you watch it now, it's it's quite a staid, dry piece. Just there's moments in it that are entertaining, and, and the fact you're seeing these actors is interesting. But uh, it definitely, with all those names and what the potential is, does not live up to that potential. Yeah, you know, I I I felt that it was a very kind of studio '50s pick that had nothing really special to it. It was very, you know, pushed through the studio machine kind of vibe. And and I don't know if if there was any way uh, to fix that. To be honest with you, I don't know if they had. Yeah, it just did wasn't clicking. I just it, it, there was the authenticity wasn't there. You know, the storyline it's marginally interesting. You know, the thing is, is that I mean, I could see how this might have influenced some other movies that are made during a war, but are not really about the war. So, you know, like Robert Altman's MASH, there were scenes in this movie that kind of reminded me a little bit about how the film MASH was put on the screen. It, there were some similarities that I, I kind of had some connections to that. So perhaps, you know, Altman had, you know, seen this movie and, and might've been influenced by it or something, but because I definitely felt that that message in, in a war movie kind of vibe was there in this in this movie it just didn't quite work and they just it didn't to me it didn't have an identity that it could stay with throughout the whole movie there, you know it tried to be this quirky zany comedic movie but then it it connected to these these ideas of chaotic nature of of incompetence during war and and what can happen in those situations and so you know some of these these movies that you later would catch 22 and and uh, mash and some of these other movies that seem to have a, a much better and tighter focus on their message kind of emerged out of the style of, of what this movie I thought was trying to achieve. Yeah, and it's interesting that you mentioned the connection of MASH. I always thought that that the idea in MASH of the announcements being made was a this original idea. And clearly, it, I mean, I don't know if somebody did it before Mr. Roberts, but it's definitely a theme uh, of an oral motif in this film. And at, like MASH, 
does it incredibly well. It's a very well-developed, very sophisticated motif. It's not a bad idea in this film, um, but it, it doesn't hold it up. And it seems sort of- It just didn't work. Doesn't work, no. Yeah. I mean, and the, I think you're right. It's this idea of the craziness that war is in the corner and it's, but it's, and maybe the audiences weren't ready for that. You definitely couldn't, they were, I don't think they were ready for quite a Cat Catch 22 or, or a mash at that point. It's pretty irreverent. This film still has great respect for the, uh, you know, the armed forces. There's, uh, you know, there's only one or two sort of characters that are, you know, you know, made sort of like humorous. We mock basically the captain, James Cagney. But and it shows James Cagney thing is he doesn't he's got no relation. He doesn't even know who's on his ship. And he doesn't you know, he just lives in his in his, you know, uh, in his uh, office at the top. And and all he cares about is this little plant that he has yeah, and his he, palm, he, his palm tree, the yeah, little yeah. palm tree. And it's yeah, yeah. this is the thing he cares about. And so this is the big symbol in the middle of the of the film. Um, Mr. Roberts, Henry Fonda gets so angry with him, he throws the palm tree into the ocean. And it's the symbol, obviously, and it becomes important later later on as well. So that sort of madcap like idea of how can a you know a, a group of guys on a ship together, you know, not be following this idea of winning the war, and instead there's all this infighting. It's a good idea, but it's it's and, but the funny thing is, as a play, it's incredibly popular. I mean, maybe because Henry Fonda was on stage, I'm not sure, but it had a huge run and everyone loved it. It's interesting, but as I say, it, does, it doesn't carry carry over very well um, as a film. Now there's, and, but you know, some of the backstory that you, and you touched on this, John Ford's, he basically, you know, he wanted his loyalty to Henry Fonda and, and getting him in. And everybody thought, you know, Fonda was 50 years old when this movie was made. And yeah, uh, and they you know the things that they did to type of to adjust that was they cast a lot of older actors as these young seamen to kind of re, you know to reflect the age difference in uh, Fonda and and the other officers and so you know you you didn't get you didn't get the I mean it, it was I didn't find that to be a distraction I just I mean you know that to me wasn't something that I I mean you know it, they looked old but it it wasn't enough for me to suspend my disbelief you know what I mean. Um, in the sense of what they were trying to achieve. Some of the other things that I thought were interesting in this movie was there's a scene where there's a motorcycle driven off the end of a dock when they had a wild and crazy Liberty pass for the whole crew and they all just go and destroy this little poor island. They had hired a stuntman and the stuntman wouldn't do it for whatever reason. So they just found some random Marine who said, yeah, I'll do it. And Ford said... Uh, all right, I'll pay you the six hundred dollars. And the U.S. Marine Corps, uh, U.S. Marine Corps said, "No, you can't pay him for this. He, he's just going to do it." And so then Ford went to the hotel he was staying at and told them that this guy can drink for life for no for a year uh, at the bar, and I'll pay the tap. And that that was kind of how he he paid paid this guy. That, I thought that was fascinating. Some of the other things I thought were really uh, interesting about this was rampant sexism <laughs> in this movie with the nurses was just so bad. It just, it was like cringingly old school, yeah. you know, just, it, I mean, it was just, it just, it, that part was just hard to watch because, you know, they just had written it in such a weak sexist kind of well, vibe that it almost, it was just like, you know. Yeah. There's that long drawn out scene where, they're called wax, right? The women that well, work. They, they these were nurses. So these were nurses. Yeah, and they're and they so they're off the off of town, but then the nurses, uh, you know, accommodations is, is right there at the hospital. Tower. At the ho the hospital. The hospital. Built. But where, where, wherever they're 
they're living there. And they, anyway, the shower apparently has got windows in it. And these guys are like splitting binoculars and just staring at the women showering. And it's today, it, just, it doesn't hold up at all. Like, it's all supposed to be funny. And then also Jack Lemon with one of the nurses, um, they're just trying to get, he just wants to get her drunk and he gets, so he can have sex with her. And that's the joke. Yeah, and that's that's the okay. joke. And it's funny too because that whole hospital thing with the if if you've ever seen the movie Stripes, they they stole that from you know, there's a whole scene where the the commanding officer is looking through the at the showers of the of the women and and you know, there's that whole scene and then and now you know that they totally got that from Mr. Roberts, you know. Yeah. And which is interesting. So as you said, like I think, you know, filmmakers and writers, I think there's a lot of interesting things in this piece. But it seems very, it's very slow and dated and it doesn't hold up so well. And even the ending, which is this big kind of dramatic, you know, noble ending that we have. And and even that's like, okay. It it was a weak ending and it just, and maybe, you know, the play would have been able to create much more authentic connections between the characters because there are times when the dialogue is authentic and there's moments where the characters interactions feel genuine and, and it's good, but you know, in a film, you know, with all the other stuff that they have to kind of weave into it, they it loses, it dilutes those moments so much that they they can't yeah. carry the film. And in a play, that's the you know the, the, that dialogue is the center of the play, and there's less distraction. So I, I just I I just don't think this, although it was you know well uh, reviewed and even on Rotten Tomatoes today, it's it's a, it's a highly rated movie. But yeah, yeah, I just it didn't it didn't click. No, but I think it's interesting what you're saying. And it's something that I, you know, I think that I'll be thinking about as we go through these films is, you know, how effective is it adapting a play into a film? And, you know, it's not easy to do. Like even the one that that you're doing, I've seen that as on stage and I liked it so much more on stage than when I saw it on film. And I think maybe some plays, like you think about Death of a Salesman, there's never really been a Death of a Salesman made. There's been a couple, but they're sort of, once again, teleplays. And I think there's some plays that are just, they're great as a play and they're not gonna really work as a, as a film. I'm not sure if that's necessarily true, but unless you really change it and make it into more of a film and these guys didn't change it, it was like set, 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 and then lines and, and people, there was almost like entrances that were like, you know, in, like in, the, in, the, in his bedroom, in his, in his quarters, Mr. Roberts and Ensign Pulver, um, there was, there's just a little space to bunk bed in the desk, but there's exits and entrances and there's no, like, there was no one cutting into someone coming a different perspective. It was just like, we're watching a set and, and then we're just watching them interact. Like we're seeing a play and it, it, it just felt like that. There's, that's just one scene. There's a lot of scenes that were quite like that. All right. Well, I don't know if I have a lot more to add to what you said. No, um, good. If so people, maybe if, I think if people are interested, like for the people that are involved, it's a fascinating project. You're seeing really powerful Hollywood people that are connected. I mean, as I guess we've noted, I wouldn't be so so excited, but I think it's, I was really interested because of the people that were involved. Um, but I wouldn't, yeah. Expectations, keep them low. Yeah, yeah. All right, so let's move on to my selection. I have, I have picked Cat on a Hot Tin Roof, which is a, um, a Tennessee Williams play that was very successful. Uh, and then it was, it turned into a film, I think it was 1950, 
57, 58, maybe when this came out. Uh, it's the first Tennessee Williams um, play that was filmed in color. His other movies, films that had been adapted, his plays had been adapted into films. They had used this kind of the black and white, serious theatrical kind of vibe to it. Uh, and that was how they did, that's how they redid plays at that time was they felt like, you know, oh, we, you know the black and white sense of, of drama should be reflected in, the, in these tones. But this play, they decided to shoot it in color and most of the driving, reason, uh, driving reasons for that actually were the actor's uh, eyes. You know, Elizabeth Taylor's uh, and Paul Newman had these strikingly powerful colored eyes that they wanted to, to capture in, in the film in color. And so that was one of the driving reasons that the director insisted that it be shot in color. And the story of this, play uh is it's very it's a very powerful and emotional play where um set in the south there is a patriarch to a family he's a, a powerful uh abusive bullying wealthy man played by burl ives and his name is uh is it big daddy is that his name big daddy yeah and he um he, he, you know, he rules his family and his empire with an iron fist and he has a couple of sons and they, and he has a couple of daughter-in-laws and his, and his wife. And, you know, for the most part, and it's not explained hundred percent why, but he, he, he has no respect and doesn't like his eldest son that much, nor does he like his eldest son's wife or kids. Uh, he's not a big fan of his own wife, his, the, the mother of, of his children. And the only person he seems to really adore is his younger son, who is a confused, played by Paul Newman, is a confused and, you know, basically has degenerated into an an alcoholic who's married to Elizabeth Taylor. And he has a lot of confusion about his own sexuality. Uh, In the play, he's a homosexual. But uh, to make this film and get it past standards and everything, they had to actually remove any mention that he could be a homosexual in the in the movie. And, you know, that upset a lot of people um, in regards to the actual film itself, because they felt that that was a compromise that they shouldn't have made. And, uh, you know, a lot of people who were in the film were frustrated with how the film was shot uh, versus the the actual play and how they had kind of rechanged it. And even Tennessee Williams was really unhappy with the the final the final cut of this movie he he he, he just said this set the, the industry back 50 years and he he was not satisfied but i thought and i had not i've not seen the play and this is the first time i've actually even seen the story and i thought it was a pretty powerful piece of entertainment even you know, regardless if i had not, because i had not seen it as a play i still seeing it as a film it was very powerful and impactful to me the things that I, I noticed was it's very interesting how they kind of connected the weather to the stress in the scenes. Like it was when it was raining really hard, it tended to be the most dramatic scenes in the in the movie. They you know there was a lot of tension and a, a lot of family infighting. Elizabeth Taylor plays the the doting wife to Paul Newman, who is kind of a confused his his best friend slash possible lover. We're not sure died and he's never gotten over that and he's drinking himself into oblivion and he won't give any attention to his wife and his wife is Elizabeth Taylor and she's just all over him and he's just like no no I don't you sicken me get away you know and the older son is uh, doting and respectful to his father but ultimately he just wants the, the empire and Burl Ives big daddy who said you know basically understands 
what's happening around him. Uh, he has just flown in uh, on his private airplane back from a medical check where has had some stomach problems that it turns out that he's dying of cancer, but they lied to him and say, no, no, it's fine. You'll be okay. But he's, there's no way he's going to live like, you know, weeks or months and he's in immense pain and he has these sharp attacks and finally paul newman uh who plays brick his youngest son just tells him you know you're, you're done man you're done and he's like stunned and he's trying to process that during the evening and this is all happening over one night basically the whole the whole play and there's all of these interconnections and interrelationships and uh and i thought you know man the, there was it's it's the intensity just never stops in this thing man it's just like uh, 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 they're just pushing you through this play and it's just you know it's like a it's like a grinder of emotion that's happening throughout the whole play uh and i thought they did that very effectively in the film as well i just felt like you know the the way that they they filmed it and i enjoyed the actual background i liked the the plantation scenes the the house the way they made the house and then there was a basement where a lot of scenes were happening where uh his he had gone to a, on, on a on a trip to europe like with his wife and she had bought like half of europe and, and then it ends up all just sitting in the basement just collecting dust because nobody does anything with it and he's in there dealing with the pain and he won't take the morphine and his son is in him or having it out you know and then the, the play ends in a somewhat uh kind of fanciful way where the brick the younger son decides he he does love his his wife now and and they're gonna you know get it on and and live happily ever after and his his father is happy that this is happening and and you know the whole family is like whatever you know and then end of movie and so you know, I didn't like the ending seemed a little unre not that realistic. I mean, I thought that was just a very kind of easy way to, to finish this this movie in that sense. But I thought the characters were very good. Uh, I thought the acting was very good. And I liked I just thought it was it was well done for a, um, an adapted play into a, a, a film. I mean, I didn't you know, it was definitely something that I was hooked into the whole time and I didn't lose focus and. Uh, and a lot of that probably has to do with the raw talent of Tennessee Williams and what he does with his plays. But for me, I was, I thought it was, it was, you know, I enjoyed watching it and thought it was, it was a, a great experience to go through. Yeah. Well, I mean, as you said, the talent and it's similar because when you do a Newman and Taylor, like Taylor, Taylor called this film the peak of her, her, her fame. She, she thought this is one of her great performances and, and Newman is an up and comer and, um, uh, and they're great. They're really good. And I think Burl Ives is great too. He's, people don't recognize him. He's also the guy, the, the voice, the, does the voiceover in all those animated cartoons. There was a pixelated cartoon. Rudolph the Red Nose Reindeer. Rudolph and Frosty. And that's, and I, so I always think of him as a kid. I know the voice as this really nice, kind person. And in this play, he certainly isn't that. He's basically the polar opposite. So yeah, he's, he's really good too. He's an evil yeah. son. Yeah. And, and I think they play their characters really well. And, you know, it's kind of unbelievable, though, if you've got Elizabeth Taylor doting on you, homosexual or not, that you, you don't want to have fun with her. I, that's the only part that's really because she's this beautiful woman in the, at the, you know, the height of her beauty. And uh, she is, you know, it's like he's, he won't give her any attention. I'm like, I can't believe this film. But, you know, maybe that's just me. Um, but also personally, I mean, this woman, this was her second or third husband, been her second husband. She'd, she'd gotten a divorce and she'd just remarried her, her second or third, I forget. And then like two weeks before they started making the film, it, what's his name? Mike Todd. Yeah. Um, he no, got, the day of the shooting starting that happened. 
Yeah. Maybe well, then she had to take two weeks off and she finally came back. But I mean, her husband was killed uh, right when the film started. And it's yeah, you know, it's in a plane crash. In a plane crash. And the story, of course, is that she was actually maybe going to go on the plane and she said she didn't want to go on the plane. So there's this whole thing attached to it. Um, anyway, so that's in, in terms of her life, you know, because a lot of people, like Elizabeth Taylor in her prime was, this, you know, she was a starlet and she was rather remarkable. And then she kind of changed quite a bit because then she got known for the seven marriages and then, you know, she she got bigger and then she got a lot, I think maybe angrier too. And this, I think, was sort of the the transformation of uh, the beginning. Well, this is right before that happened. Um, and she's also right after that, then she was credited for splitting up, you know, Debbie Fisher, no, Debbie Reynolds and, and Eddie Fisher's, uh, who, were, who were like the couple of America, everyone loved them. And then she married Eddie Fisher and that was her next husband. So then she, she started going to like a really intense, personal, crazy space. And this was the moment of this film being made of it all happened in her life, so. Just a bit of a side story. Yeah, I, I think there's a lot of interesting side stories in this as well. I mean, Burl Ives, Tennessee Williams wrote the part of Big Daddy for Burl Ives, thinking of Burl Ives to play that in the play. And he played it. I mean, he was the, the, the mother and Big Daddy and the wife were the original actors in the play. And he was phenomenal. I thought, you know, he, he had, man, he had that down. Uh, and, you know, before that, he was just known as he was a folk singer. That's He was a well-known recorded recording artist who sang a lot of folk songs. But, man, he... He, I don't know what Tennessee, maybe they had a friendship or something, but man, he, yeah, he, he was good in this. I thought he, it, it really um, was a good decision to put him in that role, even though that, you know, technically okay. he was a year older than, than his oldest son in this, in this movie. And the actors were only a year apart and he was like 16 yeah. years older than Paul Newman. He's one of those guys that some people at like, you know, at 30, they actually look like in their mid 40s. And he's one of those guys that looked a lot older than he was. So I, I think he actually looks okay, even though, as you said, he, he wasn't. He yeah. wasn't as he looked. And there were a lot of actors that, that turned down the roles. I mean, a lot of people were passed through this before for the role of Brick, Paul Newman. They offered it to a lot of Ben Gazzara, who played Brick in the, in, the, in the Broadway play. He said no. I think they asked Marlon Brando. He said no. Uh, there were a lot of famous actors that got passed through before Paul Newman got this break. And a lot of them, you know, to be loyal to Tennessee Williams, word got out that the movie wasn't going to be uh, as connected to the play as, as it should be. And so I think a lot of people took a pass on it. And, but the interesting thing is, it was like what the second or most, third most popular film that it was like it made 10 million. It was, it, you know, this is obviously. Yeah, yeah, it was the second highest grossing film of that year, I think. Yeah. So it, it was incredibly popular. And I think only, like, as you said, you know, they did make the ending happier. They did change some things. They made, you know, Paul Newman's, he's about confusion, but Tennessee Williams is very clearly, this is about someone dealing with a homosexuality. And then, you know, obviously 50s America, just, you could do it in the play apparently, but you couldn't do it from Hollywood because there's a Hayes Code, which had all these questions, you know, like when you had married couples in films in those days, you couldn't show uh, like a, a double or a queen bed. You couldn't. When, that's why if anyone's noticed see sitcoms or films from this time you, you see these two single beds in the yeah, yeah in the, the Dick Van Dyke show that was that was the most noticeable one you know and I don't think that even you know you know what the first sitcom where they didn't do that was you know what the that yeah. I noticed was the new Bob Newhart show you know they slept in Chicago they slept in the same bed that was in the early 70s but so just that basic concept they can't show like a bed that sleeps more than one person because that's implying something 
And so the notion of them actually going at an issue like homosexuality, which, you know, films didn't really look at until I'd say, like we'll say Philadelphia. So that's like the early eighties, this is 30 years later. So, so, the, so Brick's character isn't nearly as, I mean, Numa does a great job, but this whole confusion thing is it's a little like, you know, what, what does he mean? And I, obviously it's much more clearly developed in the play. So, but, and there are great scenes. Um, I do have the feeling though, of the same idea of here we are on a set and it does still feel kind of staged to me. Um, I'm not, I think this film, this film holds up much better than Mr. Roberts, of course, and the, and the, and the, the acting, I wouldn't say the acting in Mr. Roberts is that great. There's maybe a couple of half-decent scenes. There's really good acting in this film. Yeah. And as you said, it's relentless. You're, it's kind of tiring. You want to kind of put it on pause and just walk around a little bit. And, and you also mentioned the weather, that whole heat, the whole, you know, we're in this hot, sultry heat is really um, developed as, as an idea, you know, like, that, you know, the, well, metaphor. the whole name, the whole name with the cat on a hot tin roof, you know, it's all. Totally. Yeah. But yeah, I thought I'm glad I got to see this. And um, if we were going to compare, you know, I think they're just very, very, they went in very different directions, although both were well recognized. And uh, but I still think this this film still holds up a little bit better than well, um, thematically. One is a very sentimental film because people just love Mr. Roberts and what Mr. Roberts represented. And of course, you know, Hank Ford was in it. And so I keep saying Hank Fonda. And and, and he was in so many great films and people, you know, people just loved him in all these films. And so people were very sentimental about that film. And I think when you talk about Rotten Tomatoes, I think that's a lot of older viewers. And they see it and it just represents something to them. And I think it's just, it's representative of an age. And whereas Count on Hot Tan Roof, the themes are obviously much more progressive and much more demanding and they had to like not be so edgy for it to, to make it into a Hollywood film because the topics were too advanced, you know, too explicit. And so, the, so it, thematically, they're just entirely separate. I mean, and as you mentioned in, in uh, the other one, Mr. Roberts, there's basically a scene where this, the character Jack Lemmon's playing is setting up a situation where he could basically date rape this nurse that's going to come on the boat. And these two guys are helping him do it. But it's, there's no, it's not like we're not looking at a social issue here. This is funny. And so that's yeah. all, that's not what they're doing. And at the time, they all thought, oh, it's kind of funny. He's going to get the nurse drunk. And of course, it never happens. So, but they certainly hype it up like it's going to happen. And there's no, like, we shouldn't do this because she's a nice girl and you, you know, whatever. You shouldn't be right. doing this. Um, there's no moralizing, a lot of moralizing. Anyway, all right. Well, listen, uh, Don, I think we covered these quite well. Our next uh, journey in this series, we're going into the 1960s, where we'll pick two films that had originally been plays, and we'll let you know what those are when we get to them. So thank you for listening to our newest uh, episode of our uh, cinema around the corner where we looked at plays that were adapted into films from the 1950s and we'll see you next time on cinema around the corner see you later